0: He is risen. He is risen As he said. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will take a break from Ephesians today because it is Easter. I mean, what we talked about last time in Ephesians connects in the sense that it was because of Christ's bodily resurrections that, that Christ was able to make us alive spiritually when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So there was a spiritual rebirth, a resurrection that took place. And today we're going to talk about the physical Since Christ was raised from the dead, the historicity of the resurrection has been challenged. In Matthew 28:11 through 15 you see that the high priest paid the soldiers to lie and say that the followers of Christ had stolen his body and that the resurrection of Jesus was merely a hoax. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, John Calvin described a group of heretics that he battled called the Libertines, who believed in an allegorical resurrection? In modern times, since Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species in 1859, proposing the theory of evolution, the Bible has been subjected to tremendous scrutiny, even by so called Christians. The historical auth- authenticity of much of Scripture, including especially the miraculous events recorded in the Old and New Testaments, have been questioned. So-called liberal Christians have rejected the historicity of the virgin birth, the divinity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the substitutionary atonement. In reaction to liberalism in 1895, a group of Protestants met at Niagara Falls, New York, to list five fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. They listed, one, the inspiration and errancy of Scripture, the two, the deity of Jesus Christ, Three, the virgin birth of Christ. Four, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross. And five, the physical resurrection and the bodily, personal bodily return of Christ to the earth. Today we are going to talk about the last of those five fundamentals. The title of this message is, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ is Essential to Our Faith. The Resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential. Is essential to our faith. Calvin wrote that it seemed apparent that someone had crept in and taught the Corinthians that there would be no resurrection of believers after they died. The resurrection of believers who comprise the body of Christ is tied to the resurrection of Christ himself. But as Calvin purported, it seemed that some wicked persons had crept into the church who had rejected the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Calvin was uncertain whether they also denied the immortality of the soul. But at the very least, they rejected the resurrection of the body after death. The Platonic philosophers at this time believed in the immortality of the soul, but none of them had ever considered the possibility of a resurrection of the body. This teaching of the resurrection was mostly particular to Christianity and Judaism. Within the the religious leadership of Judaism, some of the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, while the Sadducees did not believe in any continuance of the body after, or the soul after death. Whatever the other errors of these heretics that had crept into the church at Corinth, Paul is particularly here addressing the rejection of the resurrection of the body. The Gnostics were heretics in the time of the early church. The Reformation study Bible states, "The Gnostics' belief denied the future bodily resurrection of Christians and affirmed instead a spiritual resurrection at conversion." This was perhaps the error of Hymeneus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2:17 through18, who said the resurrection was already past. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go through eight reasons. Given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith. First, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you that Christ is no longer in the grave, but is risen from the dead, and that we also will follow him as the members of his body and resurrection, and will be physically present with him in immortal and corruptible bodies for eternity. I thank you for this hope. I thank you for this promise of your word. Lord, help us to be diligent, to stand firm in the truth, to not be silent when heresy is taught or when the reality of scripture is confronted or denied. Help us to stand firm in defending your word as true soldiers of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith First, because it is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation according to the scriptures. It is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation according to the scriptures. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you. "...unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." Paul declared to the Corinthians the true gospel, which he had already preached to them, and which they had received. So at one time they accepted the truth of the resurrection... But now as certain wicked persons have crept in, as Calvin says, they have fallen into doubt. And some of them have possibly even denied the truth of the resurrection after death. Paul later points out their fickleness. They became Christians on the basis of the belief in the hope of resurrection. And now they are turning back from that hope. Paul says you are saved if you hold fast to the true gospel. So if they do not hold fast, they are not truly saved. And there is indeed no resurrection. They believed in vain because there is no hope. Paul gives the full gospel in verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul equates the resurrection with the gospel because without the resurrection there is no gospel. There is no good news. Without the resurrection the gospel is bereft of its power. It is bereft of its hope and it is bereft of its efficacy. Romans 4:25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses and was raised for our justification. The New King James says he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. But I like the Old King James translation better. He was delivered up for our offenses. He died to pay for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our righteousness so that we might be declared righteous. Without the resurrection, Christ is still in the grave, and God failed in accomplishing his purpose. Christ's payment was not enough. Our sin was not atoned for. Our salvation is not complete. Without the resurrection, we have no advocate with the Father. The resurrection shows that Christ's sacrifice was acceptable to God, that our sin has been paid in full. It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. It is completed. And on that basis that our sin has been paid for in full, God the Father declares us righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. He was raised for our justification. And then through the resurrection, we have the power of the Spirit, Christ in us to give life to our mortal bodies that we might be sanctified, that we might have the power to live for Christ. So also without the resurrection, there is no sanctification. Calvin wrote, for his sin was done away with through done away through the death of Christ, so righteousness is procured through his resurrection. This distinction must be carefully observed that we may know what we must look for from the death of Christ and what from his resurrection. When, however, the scripture in other places makes mention only of his death, let us understand that in those cases his resurrection is included in his death. But when they are mentioned separately, the commencement of our salvation is, as we see in the one, and the consummation of it in the other. So, as Calvin says here, the commencement of our salvation was in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the consummation of our salvation in his resurrection from the dead. So, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to our faith, because it is the true gospel, and must be accepted uh, for salvation according to the scriptures. And secondly, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to our faith because it is a historical reality. It is a historical reality. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And Paul received this from the Lord and not from men. Paul himself witnessed the resurrected Lord and was taught by him that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul is saying that his teaching of the resurrection is not only from himself, but also from the apostles. The apostles who gave the Christian faith to the early church, taught about the resurrection, and were witnesses of the resurrected Savior. And he starts with Peter, even though Mary Magdalene was the first. And some have suggested he's only including male witnesses here. He was first seen by the Apostle Peter, which Paul refers to here as Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter. Then the resurrected Lord was seen by the Twelve. There were eleven Apostles at the time of the resurrection, but the Twelve refers to that group. We know that Matthias, who was chosen to replace Jesus, did see the resurrected Lord at some point after the resurrection. So perhaps Matthias was with the original eleven Apostles when they saw Jesus. And thus he still refers here to the twelve. Or perhaps the twelve is just used to refer to the original apostles, though Judas was absent from their number. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Most of these 500 people were still alive. A few of them had died, but you could still find most of them. You could still talk to them and ask them questions about what they had witnessed. Paul was basically saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to the people that saw Jesus. After that, he was seen by James. Now, Paul mentions James for a few reasons. First, he was perhaps the most prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. Second, he was the half brother of Jesus. But also, while Jesus was alive, though James was his half brother, James had not believed. He was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry. Rather, he was skeptical and derisive of the ministry of his brother Jesus, as were all of his other brothers. So something radical must have taken place to change James's mind about Jesus. Well, of course something radical took place. James saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Calvin translates born out of due time as one born prematurely and says this means that Paul was made an apostle instantly without having time with Christ to mature as the twelve did. Others interpret born out of due time simply to mean that he became an apostle later after the others. But Calvin takes it to mean he became an apostle without being able to walk with Christ or spend time with him in person initially as the others did. Paul also points out here that he was the least of the apostles without being able to walk with Christ. I'm sorry, he was the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. He is debasing himself to glorify and magnify the grace of God all the more. But he is also reminding us that like James, he was an adversary or an opponent of the gospel. He was not a disciple, rather he was an enemy of the cross, persecuting believers. Something radical had to take place on the road to Damascus for Paul to become not only a disciple of Christ, but an apostle, one of the leaders of the church. And as with James, something radical did take place. Paul had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. Paul in his writings often abases himself to magnify God's grace. He also says that he labored more abundantly than the other apostles. And in many ways he did. He suffered and persevered. He overcame dangers and obstacles, hardships, persecutions, sufferings, and perils, while traveling all over the world sharing the gospel. He abstained from things that were lawful, denying himself. He says this, is, this not to compete with the other apostles, but to magnify the grace of God. He turns around and gives the glory to God. Paul had been an enemy of the gospel, but he was transformed so that he was able to work harder than the other apostles because of the grace of God. So he says, yet not I, but the grace of God Which was with me. And then he continues, saying, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the gospel we gave you from the Lord, and you received it. Why now are you rejecting it? If you reject it, you are calling me a liar, and you are calling all the other apostles liars. Today we have men who have written books, who have researched, who have set out to disprove Christianity who have examined the historical, philosophical, and legal evidence to scrutinize it. But they have become Christians, men such as C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, and Lee Strobel. They have become Christians because there is sound evidence. The evidence is overwhelming from a historical point of view. You have many eyewitness testimonies. You have the four Gospels which were written and which corroborate each other. They differ enough to show there was no collusion. They are not identical, but they agree on Jesus' life and teaching and his death for our sins and resurrection from the dead. We also have enormous textual evidence. The number of manuscripts we have and the closeness of the dating of the manuscripts we have to the events outweighs the evidence we have for any other historical events that far back in history. We have tremendous historical evidence for the truthfulness of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is a historical reality. Um, I encourage you, if you haven't, to read books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, or Evidence that Demands a Verdict, or More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, or Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis asks why the apostles would suffer persecution and die for the gospel if they had not witnessed the resurrection why would they die for something they knew to be a lie why would they make up such a story and then defend it to the death often living like paupers and suffering torture at the hands of those who opposed them paul suffered poverty he sat in prison and asked timothy to bring him a blanket because he was cold he suffered all kinds of beatings as did the other apostles What possible motivation would they have to collaborate and devise such a lie which cost them so much? The willingness of the apostles to suffer and die and lose everything authenticates their testimony. We have sound historical evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for our faith because it is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation. It is a historical reality. And third, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the only basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer. It is the only basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only basis of hope for the believer. Paul argues here the reality of the resurrection of all believers based on the resurrection of Christ. By saying that if the former is not true, if the resurrection of all believers is not true, then neither, or the resurrection of man, then neither is the latter, and therefore our faith is empty and pointless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that must include Jesus, who is not only the Son of God, but also a man. If men cannot rise from the dead, or our fully human Messiah cannot be risen from the dead either. Paul goes on to say that if Christ is not risen, our faith is empty. There is no hope. There is nothing to believe in. What is the point of our faith without the resurrection? We are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sins have not been atoned for. There is no victory over sin. And we are still enslaved to sin under its dominion. The, the apostles and Paul are all false witnesses and liars. Furthermore, those who believe, previously believed and died have perished in their sins as we will we when we die then he says if in this life only we have hope in christ we are of all men the most pitiable why does he say that why are we the most pitiable of all men if only in this life we have hope in christ well because as christians we are called to a life of self-denial we are called to suffer As Christians, we cannot fully revel in the pleasures of the world like unbelievers because we are groaning within ourselves, as it says in Romans 8, to be free from the sins of our body. We are burdened when we sin. We want to be free from our sin. We are striving in the battle with sin. We are conscious of our own sins and weaknesses and eager for eternal life. For unbelievers, it doesn't get any better than this. They are not looking ahead longing to cast off the sinful flesh. Calvin said that the Lord chastises those he loves and we are appointed to suffer while the condition of the wicked is for the most part the more desirable because the Lord feeds them up as hogs for the day of slaughter. That was uh, a little rough here from Calvin. But furthermore, that's the way they talked back during the Reformation. Furthermore, as Christians, we are often looked down upon and persecuted. We are misfits. Paul was the ultimate example of this, as we will see later. But if there is no resurrection, what is the point? Why should we endure this suffering? Why should we struggle if there is no reward, if there is no Romans 8.18? What does Romans 8.18 say? Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. But like Romans 18 says, there is hope. There is a Romans 8.18. 8, 18. There is a purpose. And our hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. Our hope is that we will see Christ face to face and be with him. That he will spend eternity pouring out his grace and kindness on us that we will be forever free from sin in immortal and incorruptible bodies. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation, because it is a historical reality, because it is the only basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer. And fourth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith Because it is the initiation of the resurrection of the believer. It is the initiation of the resurrection of the believer. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. Without his resurrection, we have no resurrection. The analogy used here is referring to the law in the Old Testament. When the first fruits were offered as a sacrifice under the law, The produce for the entire year was consecrated to the Lord. Likewise, when Christ is resurrected, it is a guarantee that the church, which is the rest of his body, will also be resurrected. This is the analogy he uses. Paul also talks about Adam. When Adam died, we were all condemned to death. When Christ was raised, we were all consecrated to be raised with him. He came to restore what was lost in Adam. Adam is the cause of death, while Christ is the cause of life. Christ was raised as the first fruits, and so we all will follow in resurrection when he returns. So, the resurrection of Christ is essential to our faith because it is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation, because it is a historical reality, because it is the only basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer because it is the initiation of the resurrection of the believer. And fifth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the destruction of death and the inauguration of eternal life. It is the destruction of death and the inauguration of eternal life. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts it into all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, Then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who puts all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. This is an awesome truth. Christ is going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. In Ephesians 1, God the Father has put all things under Christ's feet. But here Christ has yet to put all things under his own feet. So what does this mean? When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, God gave him all authority. God the Father did this without giving up his own authority. He is the one who put everything under his feet. He did not put himself under Jesus' feet. Jesus remains in submission to the Father. But God the Father gave Jesus all authority under him. In a sense death has been conquered on the cross it kind of reminds me of when you know Pharaoh appointed Joseph over all things but Joseph was still under him in a sense death has been conquered on the cross but in another sense Christ was not has not finished his dealings with his enemies judgment has not yet come sin still exists god has all authority and power but death is still a reality Death does not hold the same power over believers because when we die, we have eternal life, but we still have to face death. We are not completely in the clear yet. Calvin said death was destroyed in such a way as to no longer be deadly to believers, but not in such a way as to be, but not in such a way as to occasion them no uneasiness. Death is still an enemy that has to be conquered. We still have to suffer the pains of death, but death no longer has finality. Once the body of Christ is resurrected from the dead, the last enemy will be conquered or destroyed. Christ will be done with death. He will be finished with his dealings with this last enemy. Calvin said, Death now dwells in us, but it does not reign. It does not reign. It is not permanent for the believer. So when Christ has finished his dealings with his enemies, when he has fully accomplished the work his Father has given him to accomplish, when he has put all enemies under his feet, he will hand over the kingdom to his Father, as it says in Philippians 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the glory goes back to the Father as Jesus hands the kingdom over and says, Father, here it is. I've completed the work you've given me. Then the Father and the Son will reign together. Christ is always in submission to the Father, But they will reign together for eternity. And this is a beautiful event to come. It reminds me of John 10 when God the Father gave the sheep to the Son. And the Son died for the sheep and presents the sheep back to the Father. So Christ hands the kingdom over to the Father who put all things under his feet. There is a tremendous love between the Father and the Son. As the Father gives the Son the work to do. The son completes the work for the glory of the father and hands the kingdom over to him. The work the father gave him to do was the redemption and resurrection of his bride, the church. This is a passage that merits further worshipful contemplation than I have time for this morning. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith, first because it is the true gospel and must be accepted for salvation. Because it is a historical reality, it is the only basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer. It is the initiation of the resurrection of the believer. It is the destruction of death and the inauguration of life. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential for our faith, Because it is the greatest motivation for righteousness in the believer. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If if the dead do not rise at all. Why then are they baptized for the dead? That's a good question. Uh, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame this part about those who were baptized for the dead uh, yeah it's a good question paul i don't I wish you'd answered it um, it's confusing it is mentioned here but we find it nowhere else in scripture we find it in no other ancient writings so so what is Paul talking about I, I have no idea um, Chrysostom and Ambrose believe that this was an erroneous practice that happened at Corinth um, that if a new believer died before having the chance to get baptized somebody would get baptized in their place at their funeral if it was an erroneous practice which is as it is not as it is not commanded in scripture um, then why is Paul using it as part of his argument without refuting this practice perhaps he'd already already refuted it and was being sarcastic hey, if you guys are practicing baptisms for the dead and there's no resurrection, what's the point? Um, and baptism itself is symbolic of death, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as we see in Romans 6. There are many other possible explanations, and none, none that I've read have completely been satisfactory, but we will know one day. Um, Paul continues saying, why do I... Die daily if there is no resurrection. Paul daily died to himself. He denied himself. He took up his cross and followed Christ, and he put his very life in jeopardy constantly for the gospel. It says he. He says he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Um, I think he actually fought with beasts in the arena and survived. Uh, others have suggested, or some have suggested. Now, he is speaking of his human adversaries at Ephesus, calling them beasts. Um, But regardless, uh, Paul has endured hardship, suffering, persecution, and ridicule from others. His life was constantly in peril. What was the point? Why did Paul go through all this? What did Paul have to gain through conjuring up a story? Paul says that the dead do not rise Let's live it up. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no hope of resurrection, if there is nothing after death, we might as well just feast on the pleasures of this world. But there is a resurrection. And that is why I say the resurrection is the greatest motivation for righteousness in the believer. Because there is a purpose. We live based on delayed gratification. Our gratification in being with Christ is not in this life, but in the life to come. Our hope is not in the now, but in the yet to be. And what a hope we have in Christ because of the resurrection, and because he has promised to prepare a place for us, and that he will receive us unto himself, so that where he is, there we may also be. What a hope we have in Christ. Paul continues, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Here Paul quotes a common proverb from a Greek poet when he says, evil company corrupts good habits. I can't really pronounce the guy's name. Um, the Corinthians have allowed and embraced these false teachers and heretics in their church who deny the resurrection, and these heretics are rubbing off on them. Wake up to righteousness, Paul says, and do not sin. Entertaining the ideas of heresy is sin. Rubbing shoulders with the enemy is sin. Awake to righteousness because these people do not have the knowledge of God. And you ought to be ashamed of yourselves for listening to these wicked persons when I was still single living at Salem Ranch before I met Carrie uh, a wonderful beautiful wife um, I led a Bible study at Borders bookstore in Bloomington one time this man walked up while we were having the Bible study and started talking to us he wanted to tell us about his faith in Gnostic Jesus the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels. He wanted to join in our Bible study. And I didn't mind him sitting and listening, but I did not want to hear what he had to say. And I did not want everyone else to hear what he had to say. I was teaching the truth, and I wasn't there to debate. After he continued to interrupt and share his views, I I finally looked at him and said, we don't believe in the same Jesus. And he got up and left. The Bible says don't have tolerance with false teaching. Don't entertain it. Entertaining it is a sin. There is a place to debate, but that is not um, that place is not in the corporate meaning of the body. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the true gospel. It must be accepted for salvation. It is a historical reality. It is the only hope Uh, basis of hope and forgiveness for the believer it is the initiation of the resurrection of the believer it is the destruction of death and the inauguration of eternal life it is the greatest motivation for righteousness in the believer and seventh the resurrection of jesus is essential to our faith because it is the guarantee of incorruptible incorruptible and immortal spiritual bodies for believers it is the guarantee of incorruptible and immortal spiritual bodies for believers look at verse 35 bear with me but some will say how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come foolish one what you sow is not made alive unless it dies and what you sow you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men and another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The word is corruption, inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must be put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul is answering the objection of the heretics that this is impossible. How can you put a dead, decaying body in the ground and have a resurrected body come out of the dirt? The body is dead and decays and and then comes up a new body. But Paul says, hey, we have an analogy of this in nature. This happens in nature already. You put a seed in the ground and it dies. You don't bury a flower or whatever it's going to be. You put the seed in, just as mere grain, and then it comes up something different. It comes up something better. It comes up a plant or a flower. It comes up alive when it was dead. So if God can do this, think about it. God created the world out of nothing. God can create the world out of nothing. He can take a seed and turn it into a plant. And he, can't resurrect, and he can't resurrect our bodies? Well, of course he can. God can do whatever he wants. And God produces the body that he pleases. And that makes me think, you know, God, when he gives us the body he pleases, he gives us a male body or a female body, right? It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. God will give us the body that he wants us to have as he has already given us the body he wants us to have while we're alive here on earth. The future body he gives us will be the body he wants us to have, the resurrected body. And our bodies will be different. Paul talks about different kinds of body. You've got flesh and men and animals and fish and birds that differ from one another. Some are greater than others. Then you have heavenly bodies and terrestrial bodies. Paul talks about the sun, moon, and stars and how they are not all the same. Some are more glorious than the others. Our bodies in the resurrection are going to be more glorious. They are going to be different. They are going to be changed. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Our bodies are not going to be dying. They are going to, not going to be decaying anymore. They will be free from disease and free from the flesh, free from sin. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I don't believe he is saying our bodies will not be corporeal or physical bodies. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the, the apostles touched him still. They felt the nail prints. They felt the wound in his side. He could eat and drink. He had a physical body. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says there will be spiritual bodies. There's are still going to be bodies. He, he has been talking about the flesh, the nature that is controlled by sin. When we are talking, walking in the Spirit, we are controlled by the Spirit. Well, this is a new level of spiritual control. The body will be fully animated by the Spirit of God. It will be free from the flesh, free from temptation or the weakness of sin. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of an incorruptible, immortal, spiritual body for the believer. And he goes back to the analogy of Adam, the first man who became a living being. And he was made of dust. The last Adam is the Lord from heaven. He comes from heaven. So we will we will be following in our new bodies the Lord who comes from heaven, where before we followed the man who came from dust. We born the image of the man of dust. Now we bear the image of Christ. Of course, we were created in the image of God, but now more fully. We have the image of Adam and his sinfulness still, but then we will have more fully the image of God in Christ. We have more fully the image of God, we will have it more fully than ever before. The image of God will be restored, not marred or polluted by sin. We will more fully bear the image of Christ, the last Adam. And Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Again, he is talking about the sinful, corrupt flesh and blood that we have now. We cannot be with God like this. We cannot inherit the kingdom like this. We have to be transformed. We have to become immortal and incorruptible. We must be given spiritual bodies fully animated by the Spirit of God. Then Paul says, not all of us will sleep. Not all of our bodies will go to the grave. Some of us will be around when Christ returns to hear the sound of the trumpet. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, We will go from corruptible to incorruptible. In a sense, there is death a death and into that corrupt body because there is an immediate transformation and our bodies will be changed. Our bodies will be similar in some ways. I mean, Jesus was recognizable. He was kind of unrecognizable, unrecognizable, and recognizable at the same time, right? But they will be incorruptible Immortal and perfected, when this corruptible puts on incorruption, and this mortal puts on immortality, death is swallowed up in victory. So at that that point, Christ will put all things under His feet. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because. It is the guarantee of incorruptible and immortal spiritual bodies for believers. And finally, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the ultimate victory for the children of God over sin and death. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks to God, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will be completely victorious over death. He has already defeated death. But he will be finished with his dealings with death only when the body of Christ is raised from the, from the dead. The body of Christ, I mean the church. And then death, the last enemy to be conquered, is swallowed up in victory. Sin, the sting of death, is removed. We will have spiritual bodies free from sin and free from death. And thanks to be God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith because it is the ultimate victory for the children of God over sin and death. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now the application. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain because there is a resurrection coming. So let the resurrection of Christ spur you on to righteousness. Do not compromise the truth of God's word. The Corinthians compromised the truth of the resurrection. And it unraveled the whole gospel because the whole gospel, the whole Christian faith, stands or falls on the resurrection. When Charles Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species and people in the church said, hmm, well, maybe we can like put these two together or something. Uh, maybe we can reconcile Darwinistic evolution with the Bible. Then it was, maybe we shouldn't take this literally in the Bible. Compromising one truth, the creation of the world in six days. Then the compromising of one truth opened the door and then the floodgates came in. And now we are questioning the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus and the substitutionary atonement that Christ died in our place and paid for sins. And we are questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. Ten years ago, the big challenge was homosexual marriage. Well, God said... A man shall leave his father and mother," Jesus said. "A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." But Christians were saying, "Well, that's not the issue. You know, God is love, and you know the issue is Christ died for us. God loves us, and who are we to say? Yeah, who are we to say?" But what you're really saying is who does God to say? Who God to tell us a man can't marry a man or a woman can't marry a woman? That was 10 years ago, and now look at what we're facing. An attack on the very, our very being. Our very nature as beings created in the image of God. And Joe Biden said recently that transgender Humans are created in the image of God, and that's true. They are. But he forgot to continue with the rest of the the next verse in Genesis 2. In the image of God, he created them. He created him. Male and female, he created them. God gives us the bodies he wants us to have, as Paul said. And in the resurrection, he's going to give us a new body. It's not our place to change our bodies the way we want them to be. Uh, some, some people alive today are looking toward, can we take the, can we take consciousness out of the body and put it in a machine? And it's just the Tower of Babel all over again. Can we live forever apart from God? Can we make ourselves in the image we want to be? Can we rebel against what he's made us to be? Instead of embracing the resurrection and the new bodies he has for us, we want to change our bodies now. I want to be a boy. I want to be a girl. I want to be a cat. I want to be a dog. I want to be a wolf. God decides. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100. And this rebellion goes back to ancient Greek and religion, Hermeticism, and Gnosticism really, and the rejection of matter as evil. And believe it or not, Hegel and, and uh, Hegel and uh, um, Karl Marx were hermeticists. They studied this ancient Greek religion and they tried to incorporate it into their philosophy and Marxism is rooted in this. And so we have Marxism, we have transgenderism. It's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, this is demonic. This is the doctrine of demons this is a religion it's we're going to eliminate distinctions and become one just like in the tower of babel you know we're going to build a tower we're going to be united one nation god said no i want nations (laughs) my purpose is to have nations god said no I, i want male and female i want a family i want a father mother and children god's not going to allow it to happen. This Tower of Babel, he's gonna tear it down like he tore down the first. And all things are gonna be put under his feet. And the last enemy that will be put under his feet, the last enemy to be conquered will be death. And we're gonna have a new body, you know, And, and when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was still male. His preferred pronouns were still he and him. And, I mean, some have said, well, we're going to be like the angels. We're not going to be given in, in marriage. I mean, Jesus said that. I don't, I don't know what he meant by that. There are going to be differences, and there are going to be similarities. We're going to be us. We're going to have a spiritual body. We're going to have a new body. Jesus could walk through walls, but you could touch him. He was a he. So I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know that he's going to give us the body he wants to have. It's not up to us to subvert his His created plan, to subvert his will. In the image of God, created he him. Male and female, created he them. And that reveals the image of God. There's something we believe as Christians that we don't just throw off the body, that we're not just... Spiritual or a soul that matter we don 't believe that matter is evil, God created us to be corporeal beings with a body, and our body is one with what 's inside of us. The immaterial is one with the material, and the material reflects something about what's the immaterial is it says something about what the immaterial is. We are male on the outside because we 're male on the inside. We're, male, we're female on the outside because we're female on the inside. And we know this because God is going to raise us to have bodies. The decaying and death of our body is not final. He created us to have bodies. The body is not something we can just dispense with and replace at will. It is something given to us by God. And we are created in the image of God, and Satan is attacking the image of God. But do not compromise the Word of God, do not compromise because everything will unravel if we do, and the church will suffer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much through your spirit. You raised Christ from the dead. You conquered sin and death. You put all things under Christ's feet. And when Christ has put all things under his feet, we will be with you as he hands the kingdom over to you. We will be with you, ruling and reigning with you forever. I thank you that Christ will defeat death, the last enemy to be conquered. We are raised with him anew, incorruptible, immortal, with spiritual bodies fully animated by the spirit. I thank you. For this promise, this future, this hope, may it spur us on to righteous living and to defending the truth of your word and to living for your glory with with humility as the Apostle Paul. Not advancing ourselves, but advancing your name. In Jesus' name, amen. He is risen.